And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, depending upon whatever the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to another, and I must say, very special weekend of programming from the other side of midnight. We're going to be talking the D word, disclosure. It's finally, I mean, I think it's finally, maybe, maybe finally, here. And on Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. in the, uh, uh, I forget which uh, House office building, a subcommittee of the House Intelligence Committee um, will open hearings, public hearings, uh, which I presume will be carried on C-SPAN. I checked last night and I did not see the listing, but given that we're dealing with uh, a weekend and things don't really update it on the weekend, uh, Probably by Monday, things will be updated. Anyway, that's one of the places that you can obviously um, uh, watch this. The other place will be, of course, uh, the networks will do excerpts. Um, I presume there will be a live uh, feed on the Internet, uh, probably from the House Committee itself. Uh, I have to check into that myself. Anyway, the reason all this is important is because some of us remember back 54 years to a breakfast meeting that I had with J. Allen Hynek right after the Condon Committee congressional hearings uh, became public uh, from the um, uh, Condon UFO uh, Committee. And basically, according to Allen that morning at breakfast, as far as the eye can see, well, that statement that Allen made to me, Allen Hynek was, of course, the uh, official Air Force investigator of UFOs and he had a very interesting do- dual life, and uh, someday uh, I may have to get some of his uh, folks back on the air here, and we'll talk about Alan Hynek as we move through this very interesting and new and very important political process in terms of the disclosing of what is behind UFOs. But before we get into all of that, and that's going to be the substance of our next three hours, let me kind of hit you with a couple of news items. If you go to the other side of midnight if you're new to the show if you listen to me uh, the other night when i was back on coast with george and i gave out uh, breadcrumbs of how to find the show if you're listening to me on the other side of midnight.com that's fantastic all you have to do is to uh, go to one of the windows and uh, look at the uh, scroll and go to the banners and then click on that and that will take you to the uh, guest page for tonight you want to be on the guest page That means you click on the banner on the main page. That will take you to the guest page. And there you will find, uh, right under the banner, you will see uh, something that says Fast Links to Items with my name, Rudy, Joe, Michael, and Ron. And you want to click on uh, my name, and that will take you uh, further down on that guest page to my items and radio pictures. Item number one, we've been doing this now since Christmas, since the launch of the web space telescope which is going to absolutely revolutionize astronomy even as hubble revolutionized astronomy in a preceding uh, uh, generation and a half or so if you go to item number one we've been updating the web blog from nasa every week and what i did is i had keith kind of steal a picture from a, a couple weeks ago and put it up for tonight this is astonishing because if you look at item number one, the image on the left, these are both infrared 
images. The image on the left taken by the uh, uh, Spitzer Space Telescope, which has a little uh, one meter mirror. <clears throat> one meter is about three feet. So you got a three foot collector. The image on the right of exactly the same close up of a grouping of stars in I believe the Greater Magellanic Cloud, I think that's where this was taken. Look at the incredible increase in resolution, exactly the same size image, same clipping, same objects, same stars, but now you're looking at them through a 21-foot mirror as opposed to a three-foot mirror. And you can see the incredible increase. You know, this is just a foretaste. This is just kind of to wet our whistle for the stunning breakthroughs <clears throat> up to and including inhabited solar systems beyond our own that Hubble and Webb together are going to give to the astronomical community and to all the U.S. taxpayers who have supported Webb and the uh, uh, donations, of course, from the Europeans as well. And we're on the eve of something astonishing. So item number two, it's the usual where is Webb. That's the NASA website kind of shows you where they are standing with the commissioning of the various instruments. We're still looking at July for when the telescope will be declared fully functional and all the instruments super cooled down to within, you know, a few degrees of absolute zero. And that, of course, increases the signal to noise ratio for infrared um, imaging, because remember, heat is infrared electromagnetic radiation in one form. So moving on, item number three. Now, this is why we're, we're here tonight. Um, <clears throat> last week, the House Subcommittee on Counterintelligence announced it was opening hearings on the UAP problem, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, which, of course, is what the politics are trying to do when they try renaming UFOs. But, you know, you do not. This is a first official Congressional UFO hearing on UFOs, UAPs, whatever you want to call them, arose, etc. Um, these are UFOs we're talking about, and that will take place beginning at 10 a.m. Eastern on Tuesday morning. Now, if you look at item number two, go read that. That's a uh, kind of overview on, on, on Politico. The thing that I find fascinating, and I've been talking about this on the air now for several weeks, and I was talking about it just before the smoke here in uh, New Mexico killed me for a couple of weekends. Um, look at all that's happening on the planet. Look at all the incredible first-time-ever news stories, starting with Putin's war of terror, a global pandemic that's looking more and more like it was a bioweapon. We'll leave aside for a moment who uh, may have sent it to whom. Um, Look at what we're getting out of the Supreme Court. Women, suddenly, no longer, you know, fully functional second half of the human species in the United States. And on and on and on. We just had 10 people murdered in Buffalo, New York this morning, doing nothing more than trying to bring home groceries. The world has gone totally crazy. There are 15 million high-priority items for government, particularly the federal government, ranging from the war in Ukraine, which at any moment, you have no idea how incredibly perilous the time is right now. I don't remember feeling this way since October 
1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, when we literally watched television and watched JFK's address in black and white and looked at the possibility of thermonuclear war. Well, tonight we are closer because of this insane phenomenon going on in Russia with Putin and the now, you know, leaks of potential coups and they're trying to take him out and he's striking back. I mean, it's, it's going nuts. In the midst of this insanity in every direction, suddenly the House Committee on Intelligence decides to hold its first UFO hearings in 54 years. What the hell is really going on? Remember, my model has been for a long time that a lot of what we see going on down here is merely, you know, kabuki theater to mask what's going on upstairs. If, in fact, there are breakaways, if, in fact, a contingent of the Nazis took ancient technology, refined it, fled from Earth at the end of World War II, and are now in a position of trying to come back. I mean, look at, we haven't talked about Nazis to the extent in mainstream media news like this for decades. And now every other word out of Russia is the denazification of Ukraine. Hint, there are no Nazis in Ukraine. The president of Ukraine is Jewish. Give me a break, guys. But suppose what's going on on Earth which has now attacked one of the most providential breadbaskets of the planet and is going to wind up with millions of people, primarily in Africa, starving to death because of Putin's folly. Is there a larger set of background purposes behind what appears to be just blatant, incredibly stupid insanity? for something as out of date as rebuilding the Russian empire? I mean, is Putin serious? And I've read the monographs. I've read the thousands of words he's written. The question is, is he gently being encouraged to do this now? Because now is when decisions, huge decisions on the human condition, war, peace, other dimensions, connectivity, what happens when we die. All of this is on the table because the physics is now poised to make a change if it's not already been occurring quietly, silently, inexorably. And riding on these waves of extraordinary changes and fits of consciousness, we have suddenly in the mainstream a set of UFO hearings commencing that appear to most people to be totally unrelated to anything that's going on or can affect their lives. And the next three hours tonight, or two hours and change, will be devoted to exploring what the real backdrop to these hearings are and what the best case scenario for bringing out the truth and maybe staving off literally World War III. So let me bring on my guests. Uh, we have two very interesting people tonight. 
who are going to be regaling us with um, very interesting stories of how they got involved in this current subject, and B, um, not least of which is how did they get together, because they come from very, very different uh, backgrounds in um, in the social media world. So, uh, my first guest is a uh, 40-year career in astrophysics at Harvard, Dr. Rudy Schild, who is still continuing his research into activities around gravitational lensing, black hole physics, and matter structuring of the universe. Early results from Rudy's career relate to the comparison of temperature and luminosities of hot early type stars, and have become very popular in recent times as these stars are now recognized as the progenitors of supernovae. His mid-career work was focused on the first measured time delay of gravitationally lensed quasar images. And the most recent research that Rudy's been conducting involved comparison of gravitational microlensing, brightness fluctuations with black hole models, and the study of quasar inner structure through uh, close monitoring of these uh, brightenings and dimmings. Um, Rudy, we're going to call him Rudy tonight, uh, Dr. Shield, uh, also hosts a show with uh, my second guest, Joe Stiletti, called The Consciousness Enigma, which focuses mostly on discussions around human consciousness, astrophysics, the UFO phenomenon, and the works of his late friend and colleague, Dr. John Mack, also of Harvard. The show can be found on YouTube or Instagram. And without further ado, let me welcome to the microphones of the other side of midnight. I don't want to do that. No, I want to welcome Dr. Rudy Shield. Welcome to the other Thank side you. of midnight. Thank you. And uh, to whom am I speaking? Is this Richard? This is Richard. Now, let me let this me get one. Richard Hogan himself. And is it Dr. Richard? No, 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 it's not Dr. I kind of forgot to pick up one of those along the way. So. Oh, okay. That's all right. You were busy with other things. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter to anything. I just want to do honor to your own credentials. You've explained mine so beautifully. And if I might, by way of introducing myself, mention my earliest moment of relationship to Dr. Alan J. Heinick. Ah. I knew Dr. Heinick personally. And in fact, our first encounter was when I was 14, one, four years old. Oh my. Um, a boy who had just completed building his telescope by walking around the barrel and rubbing two pieces of glass together um, and figuring that into a viable telescope meter. And um, I had built onto my telescope a sun observing screen and um, I had, for uh, no particular reason except to see if it could be done, I had made a series of sketches of the sun and its pattern of, of spots from day to day. Every day an observation made at noon when I took my lunch break from um, high school. Anyway, um, he looked at these sketches uh, looked up at me and said, this young man has got talent to be an astronomer. And that was so right, 
Over the years, I would see him fairly often because he was director of the Dearborn Observatory. Of oh, North yes, of course. University. And um, I was a I, graduate. I, I, Rudy, I, I think that's the only observatory I've ever known that was built on stilts. It literally sits oh, there I by... I didn't actually know that it was about to built on stilts. Yeah. But, um, it, I, uh, it, it was his crazy there. idea. It was his crazy idea to use the little waters of Lake Michigan and build the observatory kind of out in the lake on stilts so that you had calm air for seeing, particularly for solar observations during the midday. I see. I know that. I had never heard that story. Uh, that's news to me, and thank you. <laughs> well, next time you visit, take a look at the stilts. So anyway, to finish my story, when I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago at Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, that was only 50 miles away from Evanston, Illinois, where Dr. Heineck was director, uh, chairman of the department. And um, uh, so when he came and visited our observatory to attend the colloquium, if he saw me, he recognized me and remembered me and said, hi, Rudy. We were on a first-name basis. So I am probably one of the last living people to have an active relationship with astronomer Alan Hynek, who at the time was known to be doing this work on the UFO problem um, with government funding. But... Um, he never spoke about it publicly to his colleagues at the Yerkes Observatory. And um, from our point of view, it was all hush-hush, and we didn't even hear about it when the uh, Condon report uh, was issued, finally. And uh, it uh, had basically no impact on astronomy at its time because we were all doing our other things and uh, not concerning ourselves at all with uh, the mythology of flying saucers. So that's the early uh, part of my life and my relationship to the famous J. Allen Heinick. <laughs> wow, what a small world. Hey, let's bring Joe in because I want to kind of weave your backgrounds together since you obviously have worked together and I want to find out how that happened. So let me, without further ado, give you a little background on Joe. Joe has been researching UFOs for over 20 years. He was raised in the East San Francisco Bay Area in the foothills of Mount Diablo in a beautiful small town called Alamo. In 2008, he had a UFO experience in Oakland, California with two other friends which changed the way he currently views the world. In 2014, he became good friends with John Lear, which really sparked his curiosity on the phenomenon. We're going to talk with uh, Joe about John in, in a little bit here. Eventually, he hooked up with Harvard University astrophysicist Dr. Rudy Shield, and they have combined their collaborative efforts to research the phenomenon of UFOs and human consciousness. Their show is called The Consciousness Enigma, which can be found again on YouTube or on Instagram. And obviously we're going to have a link to it here, um, either next to uh, Joe's bio or Rudy's. We'll stick in a link to, to their YouTube show. So guys, I need to go to Joe first. Um, how did you get interested in ufology? How did you know that the time 
to become professional in this arena is right now, look what's going on in Washington, and C, how did you wind up knowing about what I've been doing for the last uh, 30 or 40 years? Well, uh, Richard, it's an honor to be on your program. I've been listening to you since I was a young boy in uh, Alamo on my AM radio when you would go on the Art Bell program. Um, I've been researching this since I was about 10 years old. Uh, Mostly back then, I was focused on the Area 51 Bob Lazar story. Uh, And it wasn't really until I met John Lear in 2014, 2015 in Las Vegas at his home. that he just opened the door to so many other topics in the in the UFO phenomenon. I started a podcast back then, primarily with John Lear. I've interviewed him for many hours, uh, and that's kind of where it kicked off. And then uh, maybe in 2016, 2017, Dr. Shield and I were in a film uh, produced by Caroline Corey, and uh, I was flown out to New York to the premiere. Dr. Shield and I were not in the filming uh, production together, but we met at the premiere. And uh, years later, I emailed him. I'd been trying to get a hold of him for a while, but you know, he, as, he'll, as he's explained to me, his email is just flooded every day with emails. Mm-hmm. And I just got very lucky and <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, got in contact with him. And uh, we began our show, The Consciousness Enigma. That still reminds me of when I met Gene Roddenberry by phone. I was, um, you know, I had this little radio station that I was working at the Parton Museum in in uh, the um, uh, valley there in near Springfield. And I had a morning and evening show, and I did a lot of stuff with Star Trek. So when, when there, there was this threat to end Star Trek, you know, my instinct, given that I had a free phone from the city, i.e. the museum, I would call Hollywood. Back in those days, a long-distance call was a big deal, a really big deal. And I wound up calling Hollywood, and I found you know, Roddenberry in the phone book. And I called Roddenberry, and Roddenberry, Gene Roddenberry, answered the phone. So it's kind of like the same thing. you know. The, the people we're supposed to meet, we meet in the most unusual, interesting, sometimes uh, very direct ways. Absolutely. Uh, And similar to how we came in contact, Richard, um, I've actually been trying to get a hold of you for a few years. And obviously, you're a very busy man who gets many messages. (laughs) And, you know, so I met Jim Goodall at John Lear's memorial service Ah. a few weeks ago. And you had Jim on last week. And uh, Jim, I messaged him and I said, man, you're talking to Richard Hoagland tonight. Please, uh, what's his contact information? It was just... uh, a, a beautiful timing so it's it's uh it's it's just very similar well it really is okay let me switch over to rudy now rudy how did you wind up meeting joe and what made you guys wind up collaborating because you come from this squeaky clean world of astrophysics and you know academia and harvard come on harvard the only black sheep at harvard these days is abby Loeb. by the way do you know abby Loeb? Uh, yes i do but um, uh, we have our professional differences, and um, he prefers to just keep at, the, at a bit of a distance, and that's fine with me. <laughs> well, it sounds to me like you're on the same limb. He's kind of edging out from the trunk, and you're about at the distance of Proxima Centauri by comparison. 
Yeah, and it's not my fault. John Mack made me do it. All right, talk about your relationship to John, because John and I were friends. His his death in in that incredible traffic accident, and I think it was London, is just in London, yeah, just insane to be hit trying to cross at a, at a, a you know crossing. I mean, just nuts. So, how did you wind up taking this subject series? Was it John? Uh, yes, it was, and uh, as as um, uh, as you will hear me explain, um, it's his fault. <laughs> so I had known John socially. Both of us were academics at Harvard University. My position, by the way, both Harvard University and the Smithsonian Institution, oh. where I'm the senior researcher at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, which is co-located, uh, co-located with Harvard University here in Cambridge. And so um, I had dual appointments where as lecturer in the Department of Astronomy, when I would spend time lecturing the graduate students, Harvard University would refund the Smithsonian a fraction of my uh, of my salary, uh, which uh, would pay for the hours spent uh, doing Harvard business. <laughs> so it was an unusual arrangement. I'd just like to make clear that I am uh, I represent both the Smithsonian and Harvard University. And um, I wanted to um, tell you then the story of how I met John Mack, and uh, we were talking about um, his uh, being a social friend of mine. He had been to dinner at home, my home with my wife for an evening, he and his wife Sally then. And um, um, so it was out of the clear blue sky one day that um, John called me at my office. Uh, oh, Rudy, hi, Rudy, this is John Mack. Um, Rudy, do you have a little bit of time? I have something very strange to tell you about. Now, people need to know that your background, of course, is the hard scientist, physics, etc. But John was a psychologist. So if he had a technical issue with some of his subject material, you might have been someone that was, shall we say, simpatico enough to have him run something by you. Was that how you guys met? That's exactly the, what the situation was. Um, <laughs> what he told me was, Rudy, in my psychiatric practice, I am hearing such a strange tale of people who have had contact with UFOs and how that has had lasting effects on them, some effects in transformation, and, and social pro and uh, personal development, but some very frightening. And he said, um, much of what they say has astronomical implications. And I wonder if you as my colleague here at the university would occasionally read a chapter or a text I have written to ensure that it's not astrophysical garbage and I've, so I would like you to be a research consultant with me and I said John um, this is the most amazing thing um, I suggest that we meet in a neutral place and discuss this further and we arranged to meet in the cafeteria 
at the observatory where I was, and um, that way we would, could be assured that there were no tapped cell phone, uh, cell, uh, telephones and uh, that uh, we would be in a place where there's nobody around us. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, as I recall, and uh, he laid it out on the table to me. People are being abducted. Um, they're having forced sexual experiences, collection of sperm samples. They're being shown their babies, and they're being shown life on the spacecraft. And this is just too uh, unreal uh, to be believed, but I think we better get used to it. And uh, he said, so I would like, he repeated the statement that I would like um, you to be my uh, technical consultant on this. And um, Rudy, I tell you uh, what, we're at the bottom of the hour. Let's hold it there because I've got a million questions. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. My guest this morning, starting off, Dr. Rudy um, uh, Schild and Joe Saletti, and we're going to be talking about contact, hearings, disclosure, and what happens when officials instead of ridicule, take this UFO subject, the phenomenology, seriously for the first time in U.S. history. In the background, the Ukraine National Anthem. You're on the other side of midnight. We shall return. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. In your mind you have capacities, you know To telepath messages through the vast unknown Please close your eyes and concentrate With every thought you think Upon the recitation we're about to Occupants of interplanetary craft 
And welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night, March, uh, March, May, May 14th, 2022. And tomorrow is the 15th. Welcome to our kind of impromptu disclosure weekend. We figured we'd do a double header. Uh, tonight we're featuring uh, our guests uh, in the first two hours, and then we're going to have some of our regular Enterprise Mission team members join us with some very interesting discussion on what this all means now that it's finally here. The disclosure has a has an address. It has a, a name. It has a congressional committee. It has media coverage. It's got the new. It's got the damn New York Times for God's sake. Anyway, um, Rudy, let me go back to when when uh, when um, uh, you know he asked you to do this. Did you know what he was involved in, or was this a total, totally phantasmagorical shock? Uh, it, it was a total surprise, and um, I do remember exactly that when he had laid out in general what was happening, the abductions, uh, the... Um, um, hybrid breeding program uh, and uh, the uh, the um, uh, nature of uh, the contacts with extraterrestrial beings. Um, it came time for us to break up, and I remember that just as I was standing up, um, and I knew the meeting was over. I said, "John." Um, all of this is just so fantastic. What does this make you believe to your, to your great surprise? And he looked at me, thought just a moment, and said, Rudy, you know, I was born a secular Jewish male, and all of my life I would have nothing to do with religion, but now I realize there is something to the universe that's way beyond what we had thought. Mm. And that was such a sincere statement to me that I, so to speak, picked up my cross and followed him. Wow. So you see, it's not my fault. (laughs) Well, John can't be here to defend himself, so you're going to have to shoulder some of this responsibility. Let me shift back over to Joe. Uh, you say that you had gone to John Lear's memorial, and that's uh, – w- was that how you met Rudy, or was this earlier? Uh, no, uh, Rudy did not attend. I don't think Rudy knew John personally. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I was there a couple weeks ago and uh, just wanted to pay my respects to the great John Lear. I considered him a very good friend. And uh, he opened the door for me to investigate this phenomenon further than just the Area 51 uh, topic. Hmm. Okay, let's go. Let's reel the clock back and look at when you and Randy uh, Rudy met, because that to me is, I mean, talk about a Mutt and Jeff scenario. Here you have a squeaky clean astrophysicist from Harvard, and you got a citizen scientist named Joe who 
obviously does not have credentials in in any field at Harvard would uh, put you on the faculty to teach. So how did you guys get together and what's come of it so far? Well, after the premiere of the film, as a matter of fact, Rudy and I were talking about this earlier today, we, we were in uh, Soho, Manhattan, New York City. Uh, Caroline, Corey, Rudy, and I uh, decided to go across the street to a small Italian restaurant. And uh, here I am sitting next to Dr. Shields. And um, we sat there for hours and just discussed the UFO phenomenon. And I mean, talk about a fascinating conversation. I mean, it was like the conversation of a lifetime. Uh, I, I, there wasn't a day that went by since that, since that uh, meeting that I didn't think about it. Uh, I tried to get in contact with him a few times. And then one day I just, I got very lucky uh, and I sent him a photograph of the film premiere and uh, we talked on the phone. Um, I read a few books of his and we decided hey, let's start a YouTube channel and, and uh, focus on consciousness and UFO phenomenon. So, uh, Rudy, what made you pick the idea of consciousness connecting uh, UFOs? Because most of the UFO stories are very, you know, boilerplate, rivets, spaceships, that kind of thing. Um, it's only at the very kind of center of the phenomenology, particularly through the work of John, that we realize that there is an extraordinary um, multi-hyperdimensional consciousness aspect to this, which basically goes to the heart of what we think of as reality itself. Yes, thank you, um, Richard. Um, you know, um, I had quite a relationship also with Edgar Mitchell. And, ah, okay. Um, it was from conversations with him that I came to understand how the nature of the universe was enabling the act of consciousness. And um, I worked it out in more details just at the time of my life when I was working with other scientists at the observatory about the nature of black holes and I came to understand that the correct understanding of black holes was not the one that, was, that we were teaching to the first-year graduate students, but was rather a magnetic variant of what's considered the standard black hole idea. And because I was uh, studying um, this black hole theory at the same time, that I was becoming interested in all of these aspects of consciousness through the space program, but also through the John Mack interviews with uh, abductees, people who had communicated with, with intelligent beings from off of this planet and so on. Um, I saw that there had to be a connection between the two of them, and so I worked until I could understand exactly what that is. Um, I, after Edgar Mitchell's death, um, I worked with Ray Hernandez, who was working on a book that was a statistical survey of the nature of consciousness and also all the other phenomena associated with 
UFOs then and UAPs now. And through this work with Ray Hernandez, we came to see how consciousness phenomena were very profoundly at the basis of basically all of these extraordinary phenomena, including telepathy, remote viewing, um, near-death experiences. Um, so in essence, Rudy, what you're saying is that we need, the mainstream needs a larger physics to encompass all these other phenomena that are not explained by anything that the mainstream says we think we know. Yes, and at the same time, I was seeing that consciousness could arise from physical processes in the universe related to the surfaces of black holes. So I was now starting to put together black holes, the UAP phenomena, and consciousness. Now, isn't that an ambitious project? But um, it didn't really look that way. It just kind of crept up on me. I didn't make a consciousness, a conscious decision to uh, uh, wrap these three in a single envelope, but that's the way it turned out. Just following my native instincts for go where the data is mm-hmm. and go where the science is. Well, this is kind of why... This is kind of why I wanted to do this show tonight and do like a two-parter. So we do the, why should we give a damn about any of this tonight? And tomorrow night, I'm going to be doing the process with what we should be watching uh, with with Steve Bassett in terms of the hearings. Because politically, I think we are, those of us that believe that this stuff is real and has been ruthlessly suppressed by some quarters of the scientific community is to say nothing of government military, DOD, the spooks, the intelligence community, all of these competing players trying to keep us from realizing the universe is a lot more exciting and interesting and extraordinary than we've been led to believe. And now is the time when some of these keys may, in fact, be given to us. So let me ask this question. You've been following this now Uh, phenomenology, UFOs, abductions, consciousness, beings out there, what I call the extended human family. And now mainstream uh, guys are starting to talk about, you know, humans being the model for life forms in a lot of the galaxy, which of course completely, you know, blows holes in conventional, um, uh, you know, evolutionary theory. So with these hearings coming up, in the best of all possible worlds, Rudy, and, and uh, Joe, you can get ready too, because I'm going to ask you the same question. What would you like to see happen in the near term, in the medium term, and in the far term? And do you think that this is just an idle exercise of kind of intellectual curiosity, or is what the phenomenology has to relate to us important in essence for our very survival as a species excellent questions all of them and i would like to try to answer that with the following um 
I'm sorry. I'm, I'm it's having, okay. Take your time. Uh, I'm having to focus on this now. Um, this is what happens when you use computers on live radio. <laughs> uh, um, John Mack, who had been now studying the abduction phenomena for about um, five to eight years, wrote his famous book, Abductions, in which he laid out all of the complexities and the main points of the abduction phenomena. And when he wrote his great book, Abductions, and published it in 1994, um, that sent shockwaves through and um, well, didn't they threaten him with calling him up before some kind of a committee and saying we're going to toss you out of here, tenure or not? Uh, yes, that's very correct. And um, it was basically me that saved his butt. Oh my God! By writing a letter to that tenure review committee, stating that. Um, I am a member of the International Astronomical Union Commission that is already exploring the question of life existing elsewhere in the universe on distant planets. And we had a radio survey, the SETI Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence program, already underway. And so... I could speak for the astronomical community and say to the committee that we are very involved in a search for extraterrestrial life using the technique of radio waves, which we had come to accept as the most effective way to communicate over vast distances, although now we realize that they, you will never hear in the entire abduction literature a statement about an abductee who has seen a alien or off-planet being talk on a radio. <laughs> they do everything by telepathy. So I don't have any idea why people haven't noticed this and put an end to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence looking for their radio signals. They don't do that. Well, when, wait, 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 wait. I have new data that I need to provide you with so we can have another show on this probably in two or three okay. weeks. Um, going back to around Christmas time of last year, I got the wild idea in my mind that we should, given the Amuamua, from our work, our calculations, is an interstellar artificial object um, that somebody really interfered with. Loeb is correct. He's not correct about what it is or how it works, but he is correct in that it's not normal. So given that during that whole interlude in the fall of 2017, when Amuamua went zipping through the solar system and not even the big guys had enough time to really you know, kind of, you know, put the assets so that would have told us anything, given what it turned out to be, which was very unresponsive. 
there was this effort uh, hosted by a Russian oligarch. We now know a lot about them who has a few billion dollars and lives in California and who basically rented the um, radio telescope at the Green Bank in, in West Virginia for a period of a week to do a radio survey of any emissions coming from Oumuamua. You're aware of that, right? Oh, yes. Okay. What I was intrigued with is that in the mode of Ronald Bracewell and the ideas espoused by Bracewell back in the 1960s, the so-called, you know, AI Bracewell probe, that kind of thing, it seemed to me, excuse me, my my voice may be giving out here. Oh, there. Uh, yeah, the, the smock has been terrible. Anyway, it seemed to me that somebody would have said in these discussions, well, wait a minute. If we're looking at this as an artificial object, wouldn't it be behoove some of us to maybe transmit something to see if it responded? And as far as we can ascertain, nobody during that critical you know, two or three week period in late fall of 2017, when a mua mua went zipping around the sun and leaving it obviously in excess of escape velocity, nobody did any transmitting as far as we know. They only did listening. So last December, beginning on December 4th, I organized some <clears throat> amateurs who have very high powered equipment and we transmitted a series of mathematical and frequency codes to a muamua and we got all kinds of amazing answers which have now occupied many many hours of this program going back to uh december 4th of 2021 so i will will send you some links so when we have our next conversation you have the background that we've got which is somebody not only answered our communication but they actually physically showed up on camera over the antenna within a couple of minutes of the broadcast to Oumuamua actually beginning. So you cannot categorically say that the preferred mode of communication is only telepathy or only a telepresence because it now seems to, from our own work, to definitely occupy the electromagnetic spectrum on two critical frequencies, 144.1 and 432 megahertz. Very interesting and all news to me, Richard. I will be sending you you some, I will send you some files. I will send you some conversation. I will send you some doodling and maybe you can help uh, us get to the next level because we've kind of paused because we don't know really who we're talking to. We only know that they've given us very interesting physical information about Earth weeks prior to the events actually taking place. Well, that's very interesting. And if you I will... might, Richard, go ahead. Could I go back to John Mack and talk about um, what John himself emphasized in his book as the most important result? of his studies of the abduction phenomena. Yeah, because I want to give context to people. In the third hour, we're going to have uh, uh, Michael Hill, who is uh, actually in contact with some of these folks out there, and I wanted to have him kind of run some things by you. And we've got a couple of other people. 
But let's go back to John's seminal research, which has to do with why we should care about any of this. It's not just about lights in the sky. So um, John emphasized that discovery of the breeding program is the most fundamental and important aspect of the phenomena because it actually could represent an existential threat if you want to take it that way, but it could also be a formula for success of our civilization. Okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. For people who are not familiar with John's model, you know, pretend that in the audience there are a lot of people that have no idea what you just said. So let's start. What do you mean John's breeding program? You mean his research? So John is saying that the abductees who talk to him in psychological sessions often talk about being abducted aboard a large spacecraft and seeing evidence of baby human beings being raised in test tubes, big, large test tubes, and this was seen to be and understood to be evidence that there is a human-alien breeding program, interbreeding program, underway now. Not hypothetically, not maybe, it is underway. So you can take this as holy, holy moly, um, this is a threat they're going to take us over by um, joining our species to theirs and possibly overwhelming us with these superior technologies that they've demonstrated to us time and time again. Now, you can take that as, therefore, something we should be very worried and concerned about, or you can take the opposite program. This interbreeding program has the objective of making human-alien hybrids so that if we do succeed in totally destroying our planet, we as a species could take refuge on their home planet. Hmm. Or which, we, which, hang on, hang on, hang on. Which, which in this model, different enough from Earth that you need some kind of genetic engineering for a viable offspring to live in that environment? Almost certainly. Agreed. Hmm. So um, now, 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 John had accumulated uh, thousands of hours of interviews. Did he do systematic correlations and correlations to try to get patterns and see if totally separate people had the same stories, the same descriptions, the same scenario, the same excuses, the same whatever? Uh, I that that is um, basically what he did. The latter of your two suggestions. He did not. Uh, in his book or in our conversations have neat uh, orders that these are the people who are also interested in 
uh, near-death experiences. These are the people that are interested in astrology. These are the people that are interested in telepathy. These are the remote viewers and so on. He did not do that. He did not sort them out. He just presented the data to show that there was significant overlap between the abduction program, the alien hybrid program, and the other phenomena that people were experiencing in their lives, particularly after they had made contact with non-human intelligence. Hmm. So what made you decide when many years later you met Joe to collaborate with him on, is, is, is this a weekly podcast or is it more often? Uh, it's normally weekly, uh, but it's when we, uh, when, when we post. So do you describe, do you continue with John's research? Are you taking uh, data from his files? Are you contacting people that might want to tell their stories in the media now that politically things are lining up to where people will at least listen? Um, how, how did you guys wind up with, with, the, with the Consciousness and Enigma program? So what happened is then uh, Ray Hernandez came into the picture and demonstrated through his massive statistical survey, which I participated in and sort of guided through also, um, and he concluded that consciousness is at the root of all of these phenomena that seem so amazing, hard to understand, and otherworldly, like telepathy. And so um, I decided to study consciousness because I was also starting to notice that the problems of black hole, uh, that the structure of black holes, as we have, are now coming to understand them and observe them, seem to show a, com- a, a participation in consciousness. Our human consciousness is actually a resonance with the surfaces of the black holes in our universe, Hmm. which act as nature's hard drive in storing the quantum hologram of all ages of the universe from the beginning. Wow. Okay, let's pick up on that when we come back. My guest this morning is Dr. Rudy Shield, or Shield, if you're pronouncing it, in the strict German pronunciation. We also have uh, Joe Cerletti, who brought Dr. Schill to my attention and who is standing by. I want to ask Joe a very interesting question. And we'll do that on the other side of the break. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. 
listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, the 14th of May of 2022. Good grief, we're well into spring, heading at warp nine towards summer, toward the solstice. So, Rudy, um, if there are many modalities to communication, if electromagnetism is only one kind of limited channel, then as these hearings begin on Capitol Hill... What kind of questions should the audience, should listeners to this program be sending, be emailing their representatives and friends of their representatives and colleagues so that we get the ultimate answers to the deepest questions and we don't stay in the incredible shallows and backwaters of what was that object seen on radar from the Nimitz on January, whatever, whatever, whatever. In other words, we need to drive deeper this entire conversation so that we figure out why the hell we should care. Richard, thank you so much for asking that. And that is exactly why I wanted to tell you how I became interested in this more expanded view of what the universe is based beginning with an expanded view of what consciousness is and how that involves interaction with the black hole networks inside our universe. And it's going to get even a little bit weirder when I explain to you and your audience that what I see is that it's possible to understand the universe as having a outer boundary or what we call technically the distant horizon which is structured as an inside-out black hole. Inside-out black hole. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You're sounding like you're the universe is a Mobius loop. Uh, it is to a, a very real extent, but it's more than that. And people that understand what we just said, and for people that don't understand what we just said, please explain. Uh, it, uh, a Mobius strip is something like a belt where when you twist it, then as the belt goes around, uh, the faces of it are sometimes inside and sometimes outside. So yeah, it's, it's, um, a, it's a three-dimensional object with only two surfaces. Or, yes, or one, one surface. And, one, one surface. And, and, the, and the, the part of it's being sometimes inside and sometimes outside, um, that, uh, that occurs as it goes and does a complete circular loop. 
it switches as being inside and sometimes outside. Um, so that's not that good an analogy in this case because you have to understand it that um, the structuring of the universe with this uh, inside-out black hole structure um, allows a cosmic intelligence, or you can use the G word if you like. Um, we in science try to keep away from religious practice and all of religious politics by talking about cosmic intelligence, and we're assuming you and your listeners all understand what we mean by that. I think that's anyway, a pretty good bet, yes. Yes, it's a good way of avoiding a whole bunch of, uh, uh, of science politics and religious politics and, and stuff that's not relevant to science. So anyway, um, it's possible that with this structuring of the distant horizon of the universe, it would be possible for the cosmic intelligence to enter all universes as consciousness waves. And um, in my writings with, Joe, with Ray Hernandez, uh, a second volume of which is to appear on the 1st of June, um, I speak about this, about how black hole structuring of the universe um, allows for the existence of a cosmic intelligence as an almost certainty, and likewise, the existence of intelligence in a universe structured this way uh, is almost certainly a result of, uh, consciousness is a result of interaction with the black holes in our universe. Hmm. It's quite a magnificent picture, but it's now all laid out with illustrations and will be described in some detail in the published volume called The Free Survey of Extraterrestrial Contact. And a new volume is coming out uh, on June 1st, as I say. Oh, well, then it's the obvious time to have you back. <clears throat> and we'll devote a whole show just to this because it's making my head hurt. And I'm not even getting into it yet. So, uh, Yes, uh, it should make your head hurt. Uh, and uh, I've suffered also myself the same the same suffering. Hmm. But um, well, let me let me uh, let me. You know, we, we have we have two of you, and then we're going to be joined by a few more people at the third hour. I want to go back to Joe because Joe, when you guys met, how did you wind up deciding? Since you come from such different worlds, at least superficially, how did you decide to wind up working together? I. Uh, after a few weeks of speaking with Dr. Shield over the phone and, and reading a few texts and books that uh, he, he, uh, he suggested I read, I just simply proposed the question uh, and asked him, would you be willing to step up to the plate and do a YouTube show with me? And I was blessed enough that he said yes. Mm. And Richard, you asked something earlier about what would I hope that comes out of the disclosure uh, meetings at Congress next week. I'd like to get into that. A Absolutely. Little. That's why we're here. And there's, there's one other thing I'd like to get into later. If you remind me, are you familiar with the John Lear disclosure test? Mm, probably not in any detail. The reason, I mean, John and I were friends for years and years and years, kind of like distant. We'd see each other at conferences. He'd wave to me and 
Robin and I would weigh back and all that kind of thing. And But then he, he called me up one day and he was very focused on the moon. And I know a great deal about the moon that uh, probably a lot of other people don't know, except for the spooks and the intel community. It seemed to me that someone had spoken to him in some way and he either got half the message or he got a misguided portion. So I got to put that in the back of my mind. But relatively recently, particularly with the Amuamua transmissions, when we sent a specific directed signal with certain information at the moon, what we got back was so astonishing and surprising and consistent with Lear's model of what might be living on our own moon that I wanted to uh, uh, talk with Jim about it. And unfortunately, my health wouldn't let me do it. So, Joe, you're going to be the stand-in for John Lear. What the hell did he think was on the moon? Uh, absolutely. Um, as a matter of fact, this is going to be fascinating. Dr. Shield and I were talking about this just before the show tonight. <laughs> he was convinced that extraterrestrials have been for a very long time and still are mining helium-3, which can be used as a fuel source for nuclear fusion and uh, propulsion, for highly advanced propulsion methods. Right. Um, are you familiar with helium-3 and uh, it, its uh, abundance on the lunar surface? Well, it's supposedly, <clears throat> supposedly imprinted in the regolith. Uh, from the solar wind. Um, the problem I've had with the, all those ideas of mining the moon for helium-3 is it's totally unnecessary. That's a three-dimensional solution to a four-dimensional problem. The real way you get unlimited energy to do a whole bunch of stuff, including tripping over into the fields of teleportation, telepresence, telepathy, whatever, is manipulate the torsion field, which is a field that lies beneath the electromagnetic field and any aliens worthy of their salt, that's how they're manipulating space and time. That's how they appear like magic and disappear. That's how they can, you know, cross circuit across galaxies in nanoseconds because they're a multi-dimensional species and they're not limited like we are to currently three dimensions. So you don't need helium three. Please continue. Maybe I should rephrase that. John was convinced that long ago, uh, some sort of ancient civilization that has been long forgotten went to the moon to mine helium-3, and he was convinced that the secret space program, in conjoinment with extraterrestrials, are mining helium-3 for alien reproduction vehicles. Okay. Again, it's a step that's not necessary, according to the physics. Rudy, are you familiar with what the amazing things that can happen if you know how to manipulate the torsion field, a la the Russians term for it? Um, yes, very much so. And in fact, um, uh, I want to say that um, there is a trick here that has been described by the aliens in their abduction experiences, and that is the observation of the intense white light. It's the same white light that some experiencers who are having a near-death experience, uh, they, they encounter the white light. Oh, the, oh the, 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 the journey up the birth canal and all that, meeting all your friends and relatives. 
uh, uh, possibly uh, that I hadn't heard before. Um, anyway, <clears throat> that white light is actually very much related to the standard electromagnetic theory, but not commonly known or taught to students is that um, in addition to the propagating dipole waves that we see we would call ordinary light, a radiating gas can support octopole radiation. And this radiation would have the property that it does not propagate. That is to say, you don't see waves moving away from a bright central source and making shadows as they go, but rather the octopole radiation surrounds you in three and four dimensions and uh, allows the electromagnetic field to carry torsion. Now, I'm getting close to your topic. <laughs> Carrying torsion means that you can project through torsion anti-gravity. Yes. So the secret to the anti-gravity antics is this octopole radiation, which is also buried in solutions to the Maxwell equations. Ah. But when you learn about this in university at the sort of junior and senior physics level, your professor tells you, well, we derived the Maxwell equations now and their partial differential equations, and they admit of solutions which propagate as X, burst, uh, X minus V over C times time. So we have a time and velocity uh, interchange going on there. But in addition to that whole class of solutions, there is another kind of light that the abductees have often told us about. It's a kind, the character of this octopole radiation is that it stays with you as the co-creator of it, and it doesn't go away. So Susie Hansen, who I think most lucidly described this, talks about being on alien craft and walking along long corridors sometimes, surrounded by a bubble of light. Mm. But she noticed that the bubble doesn't seem to ever really disappear. It just has a fixed size from you, and at the edge of it, there's no more light. You can't see the end of the corridor that you're in. You can only see the part that's immediately around you. Hmm. It doesn't propagate to infinite distance with one over R squared drop off in intensity like ordinary light. It's a different, completely different kind of radiation. And it admits of more complicated fields uh, in the Maxwell equations. Rich, so, that's what I saw with a triangular craft in Crofton, Maryland. It did exactly that thing. It, the light, the bright lights were big, but they didn't light up the treetops and they didn't light up the ground. And I, that's what scared the hell out of me. That's why I didn't get out of the car and I couldn't figure it out for what was spooking me. 
the light never came to the ground. If you were standing under it, you would have never saw this thing unless you looked straight up. So I understand what he's saying right now. Wow. If I could comment on that, um, next time this occurs, I urge you to do a simple experiment because if you're in dipole radiation and you hold your hand out, well, one side of your hand that faces the radiating source will be luminous bright, but the other side will be in shadow. On the other hand, if dominance the, the light dominantly is this other kind, this octopole radiation, you will notice that both sides, front and rear, are totally luminous. It's like it, it surrounds you. Susie Hansen described it sort of as a kind of a velvet soft light that simply surrounds your body and goes with you along the corridors in the spacecraft, illuminating just the three feet in front of you and the three feet behind you or whatever. And it appears to originate with the observer. Uh, And so your consciousness is a co-creator of this. You and the spacecraft both co-create this quality of light emission. Hmm. Now, this Susie Hansen, I presume she's one of uh, uh, John Mack's patients? Uh, actually, not John Mack's, but she is an abductee and wrote a book called The Dual Soul Connection because she is a unique case, the only one I've heard of. Um, her book, uh, The Dual Soul Connection, is an Amazon book. It's available on Kindle also. And in the book, she describes herself as having two soul connections, one of them human, the other alien gray. Mm. And she has been in interaction with the alien gray extraterrestrials all of her life. And she has told, uh, written a book about their extensive experimenting with her as a child discovering that she has extraordinarily high intelligence and how her mission is to, in the future, if the Earth does achieve catastrophe, to how to spread calm among human beings, among the human race. Mm. Um, And she describes how when she goes on board the the big craft that operates above the atmosphere of the Earth, she is taken not like the other abductees to the experimental rooms, but rather to the crew quarters, where she changes her appearance into an alien gray. Hmm. They ask her to just now stand peaceably in the presence of our generators and equipment, and she quietly feels her body develop a scaly skin. She feels her fourth finger disappear because they have a thumb and only three fingers. And also she can feel herself developing that thumb that they have that can fold over and then do 360 degrees all the 360 degrees all the way around. The thumb is much more versatile than the human thumb. Mm. 
So she describes how they feed themselves, uh, how they excrete through their skin, uh, the kind of food samples that they make, and so on. It's a very, very fascinating book about the human experience of being an alien gray. All right, let me, given that these hearings are the kind of political media focal point of people's knowledge, and I I guarantee you most people haven't a clue uh, as to the detail that you just described as being part of any of this phenomenology. So we have this unique opportunity to get people to research bigger than what they think the phenomenon is. Just like I asked you, Rudy, what you wanted out of the hearing. Let's go back to Joe. Joe, what would you like to see happen, and how do you see it happening? Question. Um, what I would like to see happen and what I, what I think is going to happen is two different things. Uh, what I would like to see is Pandora's box, so to speak, to be opened. Uh, that is – You know, that's a great novel by a guy named Peter Hamilton. There you go. <laughs> Although um, he actually called it Pandora's star. Anyway. I would like for Congress and for the military and for the intelligence community to admit extraterrestrials have been visiting Earth since at least the beginning of a recorded time. Uh, I would like for them to admit that we have recovered crashed saucers and and extraterrestrial craft. I would like for them to admit uh, that we have recovered beings, both dead and living, uh, in some of these crashes. Uh, I would like for them to admit that there are structures on the moon uh, and that there's a civilization possibly on the moon and Mars and other planets. Uh, NASA's known about it. They've been lying to us about it. I would like for them to come clean about all of this. Uh, I'm worried, though, Richard. I know that you're a man of numbers. You've always said this. You pointed out at the very beginning of the show that there's a there there is um, insanity going on with COVID. Ukraine, uh, the Webb telescope in the future, all of the discoveries that are going to be coming out. Uh, There is a pattern here, Richard, of insanity and and chaos. And I am worried that Jim Mars, the great Jim Mars, predicted this. Stephen Greer has been speaking about it recently, that the military-industrial complex is in the perfect position to play the alien threat card, that there's a threat from these guys and that we need to start arming space, that we need to get ready for an intergalactic conflict. If this conversation reaches that level, there are so many credible scientists and engineers who can talk about the insanity of tugging on Superman's cape or spitting into the wind using an old Jim Croce line. I mean, the idea that we can be involved in interplanetary war and with our current technology have have even, even an inkling of winning I mean, that shows how far removed from reality the conversation might drift and very quickly. So I guess as an activist, as someone who's been involved in this from the citizen science level, Joe, I want to know what can people do? Everyone listening, they're going to want to somehow influence where this goes. What can they do? Who can they call? Who do they email? Who do they demand answers from, and when do we get to the good stuff in terms of witnesses that really know far more than has been currently grudgingly acknowledged? 
I think that the that the listeners and anybody that's interested in uh, in in researching this, the only safe bet to, to look into this any further is to do their research and their homework on great men like Dr. J. Allen Hynek and move forward in time to present day of all the research that's been done on this topic on extraterrestrial visitation, downed saucers, uh, military encounters with UFOs, and see there's very little evidence uh, that these things are hostile, that these beings are hostile towards us. Now, mainstream media, five major players in the United States that control all the media in the United States, and in the next 10 years, it's believed that it's going to be down to one or two. Now, there's a total monopoly on information in the United States. It's, it's also a fact about half of Americans right now get their information from places like Facebook. Now, this is just such a, a dangerous threat to how the military-industrial complex and mainstream media can toy with the American opinion on this topic. And I, I just want to point that out. And the only safe bet is to go back in time to the greats like J. Allen Hynek and up to present time with men like yourself, Richard Hoagland, and Dr. Shields, and uh, other great people that have been researching this phenomenon, because that's about the only honest facts that they're going to get researching this phenomenon. Rudy, let me ask you this question. You obviously, once you and John got together and began working together, <clears throat> you were introduced into some kind of a network. Um, Jacques Vallée and and I think Alan talked about the Invisible College, with you know historical analogies to much earlier times. What has been the scuttlebutt in the community that have been desperately hoping there'd be serious political grappling? With these issues, what's the what's the inside, um, you know, scuttlebutt on how the hearings might go, how they could be influenced, and how much more might be revealed that is currently being planned? Um, Richard, this question has a stunning answer. There has absolutely been no breath or word spoken about it. Among the people? Absolutely none. Zero. Zip. The word UFO or the concept of UAP and the whole story of, the, of abductions has never been talked to at the halls of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, to my knowledge. I have not had any scuttlebutt about... Um, uh, about research in abductions or in the nature of consciousness through um, alien contacts or any of this topic. Astronomy avoids it like the plague. Hmm. But if the you have... If, if John, if, go ahead. The example of John Mack has had a chilling effect on true academic, um, what would he call, outreach. Hmm. So what's the perception of what Loeb is up to? Do you, have you ever talked with him about any of this? He prefers not to talk to me about any of this um, and um, uh, barely talks to me at all, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, we shouldn't concentrate on that. 
I don't want there. I don't want to be saying anything bad about Avi Loeb. He goes his own way, and uh, he has to try to arrange funding for a massive program of exploration of the nearest stars, and that's fine. Uh, that's another approach, separate from the the um, celebration and um, investigation of consciousness, which is my direction. Hmm. I'll tell you what, let's bring in Michael and a couple other people early, uh, given that we've got well, some time. We're to... going into break, Rich. I know, but we're, we're going to do that after the break. I'm just kind of giving you a heads up, but I'd like to do that and have Michael Wolf available, uh, Michael Hill uh, available uh, basically when we come back. And we'll bring Ron and we'll bring Andrew on because I think it's time to widen the conversation. My guests this morning are Dr. Rudy Schild and Joe Soretti. Uh, we're talking about the hearings, what we can anticipate, and obviously, as you know from uh, listening to the show before, uh, I'm going to be talking about political workarounds, so maybe some of the things that uh, the committee might not want to pay attention to, maybe we can bring it to their attention from outside. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. of midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday night going into in about another half hour Sunday morning here in the land of enchantment. My guests this morning are Dr. Rudy Schild and Joe Serletti, and we're talking about uh, the hearings against the backdrop of how Rudy got into this research. It, 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 is it isolating at Harvard that if the subject is kind of part of the common parlance and people are talking about alien, you know, craft and visitations and and uh, probes that you and the only other guy that I know at Harvard that's kind of looking in the same direction are not having any conversations? That's kind of curious. That is a situation. The subject is totally off the record and there is no discussion of this. And mind you, Richard, this is a most extraordinary situation of academic censorship of some kind because when you think about it, it's generally assumed that between 10 and 15%, so let's adopt 15% of the American population has seen a UFO or a loved one of theirs, trustworthy informant, has seen a UFO. 15% of our population. That'd be like 40, 50 million people. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking just about the observatory now where there are 350 PhD scientists working together. 15% of 350 people is of the order of 60 or 70 people are probably experiencers, have seen a UFO, and know to never talk about it at the office building. Hmm. Isn't that extraordinary? Well, see, this is why I think politically these hearings, even if they don't initially produce anything of interest to those of us that, you know, kind of followed this in some depth, for the general population to have it, them informed that there is an official office in the Pentagon now devoted to UFOs, and there's a whole bunch of engineers and scientists and military pilots who are willing to come before committees and talk about it on the record, I can't help but think, I'm praying, that that will politically change to where some of these people will go, well, maybe I should uh, talk about what I saw last Thursday. Or even better still, Richard, think about which will be the first American university to offer a program and a major in UFO studies. It has to happen eventually. Who will be the first? Will it be Harvard University or will Harvard University be the last? Hmm. Um, roughly what date did you come to the realization there was more in heaven and earth than was dreamed of in your philosophy? Um, I would say that um, I had a Lutheran child background, uh, background and however by the age of 20 had uh, decided that uh, uh, there was nothing to religion and um, that, my, that changed 
about the time I was working with John Mack and the abductees were telling of having the experience of their being a supreme being or what we were then calling cosmic intelligence. Right. Hmm. Say what, let's bring on some of our other folks here. <clears throat> Ron, are you with us? Uh, yes, I am. Okay, this is Ron Gerbron. Hi there. I what? got a generic question from everybody. Okay. Uh, yeah, what, uh, the, uh, there's in clandestine areas, there, there's something known as the circle of trust, you know, which is kind of self-explanatory. Those are the people that you can actually talk to. Uh, and I sense that there isn't much uh, in that regard in the um, halls of Harvard and elsewhere. It's because I find it hard. To, I think the percentage of people that have had some sort of contact experience is, pro- is much higher. Most people just don't talk about it. You know, they, a lot of people have something filed away. It's extraordinary if it comes out. So I think they're only counting the ones. Well, I have like unusual experiences. I have no idea how to categorize them. They don't fit into anybody anybody's category I've ever heard of. So I'm kind of sitting here all by myself on a mountain. Rudy, when when Loeb made news by claiming the Mua Mua was artificial, didn't that kick off any kind of discussion, debates, acrimony? He's crazy. Oh, look at that. He found the. In other words, does anybody talking about this other than us crazy? Actually, no. Now, be careful here. I'm not that perfectly informed because I don't get to hear everything that happens at Harvard University uh, or everything that happens in the astronomy department at the university. Um, What I do uh, is listen at any opportunity, but there have been virtually none. Hmm. I wonder if that's going to change once it hits the mainstream news. Well, you see, that's why I'm saying who will be the first university or which will be the first university to offer a program of study of the UFO question. You know, I'm wondering, we ought to have brought on Barbara Honiger. Uh, it's probably too late to try to call her now. But she has done a lot of interesting presentations at the uh uh, Naval College, and she's somehow associated with the uh, Annapolis, I believe, uh, you know, the, the Naval Institute there. I wonder if they would be the first, or would it be the Air Force? Uh, or would it be, would it be, would it be the Space Force? Good for you, Richard. Say again? Uh, good for you, Richard. I didn't think of that, but you were right. Uh, that would be a logical starting place because it is the Navy that stuck its head out and said, wait a minute here, we've got naval pilots that are being harassed by UFOs, and uh, our fleet is being observed and perhaps interfered with by these craft, which we have no power over. And so maybe um, um, uh, the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, Maryland, would be a logical starting point. Well, I always said, even back when, when Trump first proposed it, that, that it shouldn't be a space force. We should be a space Navy. You know, the analogy with naval ships and certainly submarines, long duration, you know, underwater, you know, uh, uh, isolation and all that fits much more the kind of 
meme of space flight than, you know, Air Force jets. But it's probably just me, you know. Anyway. Well, you're right. In a logical way, I agree with you, Richard, that um, it should be the uh, Naval Space Force. Okay, let me go back to, to George while we're waiting. Uh, did, did, did Ron get an answer to his question? Ron, did you get an answer? Uh, not really, except to, except for when I start talking about anything, I get shut down. I pay people to do that. It makes me look mysterious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, uh, no, 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 no. Uh, I would direct people to something that Keith got up that was a little kerfuffle there. One of my items shows up one of the patches that one of the new branches of the Space Force, since you mentioned it. Right. A good place to stick it in. Um, and... Uh, I've been cataloging those, and even NASA claims they don't know how many there are at this point. It's just been bursting, uh, bursting like a fungus. There's just so many different subcategories. They've got big, long, impressive titles, and uh, they all got their own patches. And I, I paired one of those up with an ancient Egyptian um, sculpture. Oh, it's number owl. two. It's the owls and the Egypt and and the space force. Oh my God! Look at that. Yeah, and that's uh, that's uh, a Delta Delta Group team. Uh, I think they do electromagnetic warfare, but don't quote me on that part. I'm still trying to get all the yeah guys, Rudy and 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 Joe. If you have access to a computer, you want to look at item number two in Ron's section of Radio with Pictures. Uh, just click on his name under the banner at the top of the guest page. That'll take you to his section. Look at that, and then of course you remember the. The secret society that meets uh, at Bohemian Grove, the owls are a big factor in that. Yeah, Bohemian Grove is just about an hour north of where I am. Oh uh, and also, abductees. There, there's a lot of uh, bizarre parallels with owls. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I'm about to take a look at that image. So if you give me a moment, I'll, I'll take a peek. Sure. It's a, uh, the... Uh, some of the patches are even wilder, but somehow I thought the owl would come up because it's according to the uh, uh, according to MoMA, it was one of their catalogs. I got the picture out of the. Um, uh, it's very very rare for the Egyptians to have depicted an owl. There's a uh, there's a, a hieroglyph that's that's an owl. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, yeah they very uh, they you know they you've seen pictures very nicely done watercolors usually strange thing is ron sitting in in utah where the utah monolith was at sitting Uh on a ledge was a sculptor sculpture of an owl and i'm like how do people look at that and can't see that's an owl (laughs) it's everywhere rudy in the ufo community owls have a very special symbolic place you remember what it is Uh uh, no, I don't know this, Richard. You're uh, you're the master here. Uh, carry on. Tell me more. Well, wisdom. And if we're dealing with you know owls being kind of, um, of of screen memory creatures for ETs, aliens. I want to separate aliens and ETs. By the way, they're not the same. Um, it seemed to me the attribution of wisdom to the secret goings on in Bohemian Grove and you know a lot of esoteric traditions. And then the conflation, remember, there's a whole uh, sub-Rosa UFO intelligence group called the Aviary. 
You knew about uh, no, that? No, I didn't know that. Oh, uh, yes, no, yes. No, I had no idea. Oh, the intelligence community loves their birds, and I'm beginning to kind of figure out why, I think. Um, who else do we have with us? We've got we've got Keith, of course. Um, do we have Andrew? Yes, you do. Mr. Curry. Okay. Hi. Andrew is our resident space artist and illustrator. He actually works from Canada, working on Hollywood projects and commercials and all that good stuff. He has taken a real fancy to artwork given, you know, features on the moon and Mars. And this last week, you sent around a clipping. In fact, if we go back to my items, if you go to uh, the banner at the top of the guest page uh, and click on uh, my name, that will take you to my items. Uh, the last item, uh, which is very important, is a is a um, uh, mainstream news story about the Curiosity Martian rover spotting a bizarre doorway on the planet Mars. And I've had Ron, you know, kind of put up some some comparisons. What do you think of this doorway, Andrew? Well, some people have been saying – I've been reading a few more articles about it. Uh, by the way, hello, everybody. Um, thank you for having me aboard. Some of the estimates of the size of this quote-unquote doorway is anything from um, uh, 18 inches to maybe three feet tall. And I know, uh, Richard, you've made a comment about – well, it doesn't really matter about the size of the door. It's, it's the, the geometry, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and the and details inside. I mean, obviously, somebody yeah. cut through – one of these ancient collapsed arcologies in our model, and damn it, Curiosity took this really damaged picture. I mean, they could put out a much better image. They put out the worst possible version, so people would go, oh, that's just another trick of light and shadow and wander away. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> uh, when I spread the well, when, I mean, everybody's been doing this all over the planet, talking about this. It's not just me. Uh, and I had asked in our email group, uh, does anybody have a picture like on hand of some sort of um, temple that has an entranceway like that? And then Tim Saunders immediately picked up Tutankhamun's tomb and said, well, it sure looks a lot like the Egyptian masonry used for his tomb. The Valley of the Kings, of course. Yeah. 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 And, and, uh, and Andrew, I don't want to stop your flow, but uh, just because of that, that's what most of the pictures that, I, that are up in my section are tonight. The um, uh, it was actually a two, it's at Giza, but it's one of the many, many, many tombs that are all over the place. It's not one that is famous to anybody. It's near the Menkara pyramid, uh, but it's uh, the uh, it looks like the ones you see in movies. <laughs> OK, the reason movies. the reason, Rudy, yeah. I wanted to bring. Uh, Ron and, and Andrew on is because part of our discussion, at least here, <clears throat> and I'm going to try level best we can do to get it at the committee in Washington, we've got to stop excluding the ancient artifacts and technological ruins and buildings and you know shards and machines and incredible high tech you know junk that we're seeing all over the damn solar system on not only the NASA data, but the Chinese data, the Japanese data, the Russian data itself, both of the moon and Mars. In other words, when did you come to the realization that the UFO cover-up, in fact, included anything beyond the planet and current terrestrial 
total preoccupation? Um, I'm not sure in that what was the question. When did I conclude? When did you start thinking of intelligent artifacts on other planets in addition to spaceships and somebody coming to us from either other spatial realms or other dimensions? Again, all of this occurred at the time I was working with John Mack, and at that time I began to meet with some of the abductees uh, in both uh, rather formal and rather informal settings, and I found them to all be very intelligent, communicating very well, and uh, obviously troubled about these uh, particular items in their life, but um, uh, there was nothing unusual uh, per se about them. They were all focused on different parts of the extraterrestrial experience. The different aspects, as I say, include uh, all spontaneous um, clickings on and off of their television set when they happen to be around, or um, seeing footprints of where somebody obviously walked through a closed door and things of that kind. Uh, uh, they were starting to turn up, and I just had to start paying attention like any normal uh, scientist would. But I didn't get any reinforcement from anybody around me except for John. Hmm. When did the subject of <clears throat> materials, structures, technology, artifacts, machines, whatever, on other planets that NASA was looking at, like the moon and beyond, when did that come up? And how did you first become aware that this was a possibility? Actually, um, there's a big uphill battle going on here because I know that you're very close to uh, these various artifacts in the moon on Mars. And I think you know that Edgar Vichel was a personal friend. He stayed overnight at my home with my family uh, on a few occasions. When he was visiting Boston, he was from MIT as an alma mater. If he was going to give an honorary lecture, he would very often stay with me, and, and I'd take him down to the campus and uh, attend his lecture. So um, uh, I had a lot of time with him, and in one conversation, I remember I asked him, Edgar, you were in the lunar orbiter uh, circling around the moon, including the backside that we never get to see. Um, did you ever see any unusual artifacts? And he said, no, Rudy, I never saw anything that was, uh, that was obviously um, not natural to uh, the cratering of the planet and the uh, planet Mars and Venus. Uh, and, and the moon. So I have a feeling that Edgar would have said that not only to me, but other people who would have been asking him the same question. And I'm afraid that you, Richard, claiming to have found such artifacts, are up against the momentum <laughs> of this, uh, this great hero who was there not having seen them. Now, I took... Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I've got an idea. 
Joe, did you ever hear the debate that Art Bell arranged between me and Edgar Mitchell about what's on the moon? No, but I heard the one about uh, you and John Lear debating. I have not heard the one of you and Edgar. Well, you should go back. It's probably in some archive somewhere. I haven't looked for it in many, many years. Uh, my copy is here somewhere. Uh, March 7th, 1996. Yeah, and it was very interesting because if you listen carefully, Rudy, to Edgar Mitchell, he never outright, uh, you know, uttered a lie. In other words, he always couched his responses as, as far as I know, or, uh, you know, in terms of our briefings or our debriefing. In other words, he never... He never um, acknowledged there was something there. He did accept data that I sent him. He never responded to the data. And my perception is that either politically, because he was military, he was basically ordered never to talk about this, or more likely, given the other evidence that I have, he and the other astronauts literally underwent, shall we say, certain procedures psychologically so that they could not remember what they really saw and experienced? Uh, so I don't know anything about this, this side of Edgar Richard. Uh, I only know of my own personal experiences, but um, he never discussed uh, this topic with me. And except for that, that, that one simple answer to my inquiry. <clears throat> and so I think that uh, as regards his having seen your materials, he probably would have categorized this as, well, it looks like at the 80% um, level, there's probably something there, but the probability isn't high enough that I uh, would commit myself to it being, there about to there being such artifacts mm. in reality. I suspect he takes a position that I do that I have to be like 98% certain <laughs> that is true before I <clears throat> speak about it uh, to other people who expect me to speak with some authority. Well, I can guarantee you sometime in the next few weeks, because <clears throat> I won't overload you, I'm going to send you some images that's going to blow your socks off because there's un okay. unequivocal evidence. Unequivocal. Seen, Go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I wanted you to know I have seen the images that Joe Cerletti sent to me uh, of the the face on the moon, the towers, and uh, the pyramid structures, and so on. And um, so I know that part of it and can save you the trouble. Uh, do you have things other than what Joe Cerletti has? I have um, thousands. He does. He does. Uh, he has not received the Apollo images of the astronauts with the artifacts yet. Well, was that you, Joe? Yes, that was me. Correct. Okay. And who has not received the, the images yet? Rudy has not seen the Apollo images. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. He's only seen the faces and the pyramids and the tower and the dome structure. Well, we, we have a very interesting uh, learning curve ahead of all okay, of us. Okay, very good, Richard. <laughs> In fact, uh, I'm okay. going to show you, I'm going to send you images <clears throat> taken by talented amateurs from Earth 
who have photographed these things, but they have no idea what they're looking at. They have literally no conception of what they're looking at. But their data, and these are independent guys, all photographing the same damn thing. So this will be a very interesting conversation. Okay, we're coming up to the top of the hour. Um, I wanted to talk about the idea of artifacts in the next hour and the UFO hearings and how we get the two together on the same page. Because unless the NASA data is looked at by a congressional committee, I think we're going to be debating this endlessly, endlessly for the next, you know, five decades. And anybody can respond who wants to. Okay. Start, you should start that with Andrew because I, I, uh, I accidentally cut him off when I um, jumped in. He was just getting into his stuff. Oh, okay. Andrew, are you there? Yes, I did. I did want to frame a question maybe after the break. Too. Yeah, we got about two minutes in, in front of the break, so set it hmm. up and then we'll uh, we'll pick it up when we come back. Okay, maybe I can. Um, so, Doctor Shield. Um, you talk about when you were 14 and you made your own telescope, and I'll, I'll ask you directly, what were you looking for? <laughs> uh, actually, I was just trying to learn the subject. Um, as a 14-year-old, I knew that I had an enormous learning curve ahead of me because I was interested in basically all technical subjects like a little boy would be expected to. Did you and, ever, um, did, did you ever, Rudy, did you ever get an, uh, uh, Andrew Ingalls' uh, book, Amateur Telescope uh, Making? I know the book, The Amateur Telescope Making yep. by Ingalls, as I recall. Uh, it's the I, Bible, uh, the Bible. <laughs> yes, I know the book, but I didn't own it. I had the other book that was won by um, uh, Alan J. Thompson called Making Your Own Telescope, which uh, was oriented toward building yourself a 16, uh, I'm sorry, a six inch F8 reflector telescope. And that's what I built. There's a picture of it on my homepage and um, I'm standing next to it proudly and uh, um, I used this many years to explore the skies of a youngster growing up in Chicago. Okay, let's hold it there. My guest this morning, Dr. Rudy Schild, Ron Gerbron, our resident generalist, Andrew Curry, uh, Joe Shaletti, and um, we're going to have a couple others. We're going to try to get hold of Michael Hill. Given that Michael Hill is in touch with folks that uh, claim not to be here, not from here, you know, anywhere but from here, I want to talk to Michael. So if we can uh, get him up on Skype, that would be very useful. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're talking about what could happen during this beginning official government UFO hearings of the House Subcommittee on Counterintelligence. It will be taking place at 10 a.m. Tuesday morning. Eastern Daylight Time. Hopefully, they'll be on C-SPAN. You're on the other side of midnight. We shall return.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode. Two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. back everyone on this now Sunday night Saturday night Sunday morning you know that works okay it is a little after midnight here in the land of enchantment my guests this morning are Dr. Rudy Schild and Ron Gerbron and Andrew Curry and Joe Saletti and uh, we're looking for Michael Hill if Michael Hill can uh, uh, join us that would be useful Keith is working on that so let's go back to Andrew you were just about to talk about artifacts and hey, my Richard, favorite. Can you hear me? Say again? Can you hear me? This is Michael. Michael, there you are. There you are. Okay. I, I, I just beamed in. <laughs> well, that's the way it's supposed to happen. Okay. Right? Say that. Let's uh, hold, hold still for a moment. I want Andrew to complete a thought that we'd started on the other side of the break, and then we'll get to you because I want to I talk to you about first peoples and contact with uh, family. So, Andrew, back to you. Yeah, thank you, Richard. So the reason why I asked you that question, Dr. Schild, is recently – oh, gosh, this is months ago. It might have been last year. But anyways, it was on one of our – what we call our enterprise imaging shows where we do look at uh, images from space agencies all around the planet and the things that we think they're revealing about uh, you know, different planetary bodies in our system and even uh, – uh, you know, so-called asteroids, etc. Um, one of the things that I looked up is the profiles of a, a lot of the NASA personnel. So all the people that are doing the robotics and the engineering, and, and a lot of them are very young. The, some of the older men and women are a little more careful with their bios, but the younger ones, almost to a T, not almost to a T, but many of them, uh, speak of their inspiration to move into, you know, uh, ast- astronomy, 
and into NASA because of their of the influence of sci-fi and all the shows they saw, Star Trek, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, when, when Joe, you were talking about if this, um, you know, is the government going to lie again? I don't know if they're going to be able to because I think, you know, the populace has been prepared. Oh, let me long. interrupt. Andrew, this is yes. exactly where I want to go because go. I think we, when I say we, I don't mean just this show. I mean all of us all over the planet for all these decades who wanted the truth on this, we now have a vehicle. We now have a focal point. We have a official U.S. government congressional committee. If that does not become the target of every activist who wants science, honesty, and political you know, uh, adulthood on this subject, then I don't know when we would ever have a better chance. So go for what it is you'd like to see happen. You mean to me, Richard? Yes, I mean, yes, all Andrew. Oh. Andrew. Well, I mean, for, for me, so for our feeling is, um, you know, and you, you guys are acknowledging something, you know, some sort of presence. And I line up a, a lot more with that. This presence or this, the, the, these beings might be a lot closer <laughs> in our celestial neighborhood than we might realize. Um, and, you know, this has got to do with what we believe we're seeing ruins on the moon and on mars and on like i say on, on other you know other planetary bodies in our system and again we can't totally, we can't prove that until we complete until we get there and go and analyze it it's like any any smart scientist right but the images are becoming more and more clear they're becoming tantalizingly blatant and it's, it's not just geometric structure anymore it's not just geometry we're seeing what we're seeing is artwork like mars I, okay, it's 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 ruins. Like you know, we were talking about Curiosity, and and that that rover is currently in Gale Crater, and it's an unbelievable place. I mean, if it was just geology, it's amazing. But what we've seen is well, what we think we're seeing is is our, our massive pyramids, uh, uh, temples, uh, destroyed uh, uh, statuary i mean we just i mean we've seen so much and and and, you know many people would say oh you're crazy you're just projecting (laughs) well we're acknowledging here that that there's ufos so why can't they be in our celestial backyard just literally beside us so we would like to see the government say hey we do think we might be seeing something odd you know on mars and we have to take this seriously so that's where i'd like to see it happen Rudy, let me ask you a, a, a dumb mainstream question, okay? When a, when a Muamua appeared in 2017, in October, and then this bizarre, from most perspectives, mainstream perspectives, alien artifact theory kind of emerged uh, at Harvard, was there any discussion among ordinary curious scientists like, what the hell could this could this incredibly unlikely possibility actually is there data to support it did anybody evidence any normal scientific curiosity actually the answer is no with the exception that there was once a comment in the group that is studying star formation that was just that was a a toss-off remark about Oh yes, if that odd object uh, um, is uh, actually artificial, then 
we've got neighbors after all. If something was just tossed off and uh, never taken up, and there was no serious discussion as against anything else that uh, was a scientific curiosity that could be understood with Maxwell's equations or with the relativity theory, there it was laid out before your eyes and investigated very carefully. So um, you would have to say that by and large, it was not taken seriously or considered a vital uh, object of discussion for astronomy as a whole. It wasn't, it was, it was in my mind, I remember at the time from the get-go, oh, we're pretending that uh, we think we know what it could be as, uh, as extreme a, um, an explanation as it was. Uh, I think it's probably going to turn out to be something much simpler, but um, um, uh, nothing has much emerged, but there has really been no more conversation of it than that. Mm. So let's just say I only experienced uh, a very, very minor amount of discussion of it. Uh, I'd like to throw in a comment. The next time you hear someone in, dis in a discussion like that say that, oh, it's probably something much simpler, you know, and to dismiss the subject, just pop up right then and say, oh, like what? <laughs> well, um, try that. See what happens. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's harmless. Well, the, hydro the hydrogen ice idea, which is nuts, went so hydrogen far because ice. there's a vacuum about any other real possibilities. It's like the community actually entertained the most absurd real-world models because they can't bring themselves to go where Loeb has gone. Yeah, they'll fight to the death to preserve something that's just an assumption. <clears throat> So I take it, Rudy, that, you know, postcards from the edge, even after, you know, official hearings, of course, they haven't actually begun yet. So we'll have to kind of watch this. The feeling in academia <clears throat> is this is a subject that you would never handle with a 20 foot uh, pole. Well, I wouldn't say quite that way, but uh, I wouldn't wager a graduate student's career on it. Ah. In other words, I wouldn't say to a graduate student, this is really the most important thing and should be investigated because um, I would consider that there's too much possibility that there is some kind of a silly explanation like there is some object that occasionally orbits uh, the sun and eclipses this thing or there is something going on uh, with some kind of gravitational lens that obscures it occasionally, or that there is just a dust cloud of some kind that has obscured it uh, and does it semi-periodically. Uh, 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 so wait, wait, are you talking about Tabby's star or Oumuamua? Oumuamua. Uh, yeah, well, Oumuamua was a single object that whipped around the sun before they could really marshal any decent resources because it was so un, unresponsive. It was a point of light. It was always a spectroscopic uh, analysis. And the thing that was so mysterious was after it passed around the sun, it accelerated. And of course, that generated all kinds of bizarre explanations, including lobes about solar sails, 
what are your thoughts about that? Um, so, in fact, that's what I was talking about, that um, um, this could be um, uh, a combination. I, I, I'm imagining that whereas solar sails came up, I think that there that is a possibility, but the universe of other possibilities is, to me, so great. And quite frankly, I don't think it's very interesting. Richard, can I um Yeah, sure. Something? By all means, yeah. 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 I, I, this is sort of a general question to anybody here. What would be more dangerous um, to discuss and take seriously? Um, UFOs and the presence of ETs from somewhere, you know, far, far away, or local ruins and where that may have originated and come from. What's a more dangerous precedent-setting situation, or are they on equal footing? I mean, local, local destruction, destruction, meaning like you yeah, know, ruins I, on I Mars. think that question was directed to you, Rudy, in terms of imminent technological stupidity, like, you know, World War III, that kind of nonsense. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm a bad person to talk about <laughs> this because I, my mind just doesn't go to, to these areas so much. I, I have, I understand, I've, I've uh, stretched my... Uh, my credentials and uh, uh, try to understand the universe that enables consciousness. And I consider that to be um, very fruitful and very important. But I have seen so many other little anomalous things come and go, um, often without being satisfactorily resolved. Um, but as here, Having one stated possible explanation, which everybody then focuses on, but when it ever gets then resolved that that's not possible, then interest usually just typically evaporates or withers away because you start to realize that, okay, it's not the first thing you would think of, but there are so many other things that you could think of that um, this is futile. It's not. Well, wait, 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 wait. Let me let me do this, and then you can jump in. The problem with the Mua Mua Rudy was not only did we see key numbers of the torsion field in its very celestial trajectory, which could not happen by accident. I mean the probability is incredibly low but the very anomalous motion of its behavior after it passed the sun remember the unusual accelerations which were interpreted by the mainstream as cometary outgassing except there was never any outgassing ever observed even by the keck it would be nice actually to um uh, i would have to say called my bluff here. I'm really under-informed about Obulabula. Oh, my. And, uh, oh, oh, oh. Well, I've got to send you more data. This is an area uh, of your education I, I suppose, that's been woefully... I suppose if you like, but I would re much rather talk about consciousness and about the, the structuring of matter in the universe. No, no, I'm not going to do this tonight. I'll do this in the, yeah. in the next uh, several weeks or whatever. Tonight, I want to talk about consciousness in terms of the hearings, because it's the only chance we have to raise 
the consciousness of the audience on this subject. So how do we how how do we do that? Well, there's another place, Canada, Richard. You know, Canada, Canada, as in. I've heard uh, of it. It's somewhere up north, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Is that well, you, Michael? I, I hate to say, but can I jump in because... Yeah, Michael. No, no, no. I wanted you to... <clears throat> Let me give you a little background. Michael Hill is a musician, a hell of a good musician. He's played with some of the greats. He also has relatives that are not from here. He's been in contact with them. Uh, there's a lot of controversial material, but I'm kind of wondering, Michael, from your sources, your contacts... Is there any interest on the part of the family in what's going to happen on Tuesday in Washington? They're absolutely, they're in charge. John Alexander, um, they asked them, have you and Robert Bigelow come to a conclusion to the intelligence behind the phenomenon that you've been studying and finding? He said, yes, we have found out that it's more complex than we could have ever imagined. And it's definitely in charge. And they said, we have now we know we've come across the trickster. The trickster, and first of all, the skinwalker is a Native American Indian concept as well. They would see these orbs of light come down, and they would take on physical, biological life form, whether it was a giant wolf. Michael, 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 for people that have never heard you before, give me a two- or three-minute precy on your relationship to off-worlders, to the Anunnaki, and to the technologies that you've been working on that are part of that contact. Right on. Well, it all started with, I started experiencing and witnessing and recording them over Lake Erie. Some of my footage went viral on my YouTube channel has over 5 million views now. That brought the History Channel to my door. They ended up doing a whole show on my story. This is like uh, decades ago? 2008 is when it aired. Okay, okay, good. and in this episode, they flew me to Boston. Uh, Harvard professor David Sistrom revealed on the show, I don't have normal human blood. That was a shock to me, by the way. I was like, wait a minute. This isn't a TV show anymore. What, uh, what are you talking about? Is there something I should worry about? And he said, what do you think unknown means? Kind of not very nice about it. And, um, I, you know. No, wait, wait, wait. Let's not skip over this quickly. Mm-hmm. For this television show, which was going to feature your camera observations of UFOs mm-hmm. over Lake Erie, the, the television production company brought you to Boston, and they had you agree to certain genetic medical tests to reveal what? Um, they had found another contactee that was um, in Washington, and he was a Marine. And they found this blood anomaly. Well, they didn't even know that at first. What they knew is they interviewed him two weeks before me, and he had the same footage of these orbs of light that are showing up worldwide right now. What's um, the anomaly? What, uh, the anomaly is an – well, let me say, what they found, the anomaly was an enzyme called creatine kinase. The normal amount of it in blood is 25 parts per liter of blood. In Terrell, it was around 2,000, and um, so there's no medical reason, though. Usually, creatine kinase brings oxygen into the bloodstream to facilitate healing. So if you ripped a muscle or had a heart attack, it can jump up to about 
300 parts per liter of blood tops. That's because it's bringing oxygen into the bloodstream to facilitate healing. And what I've learned is how much oxygen you have in your body equates to how much chi or prana that you're holding, electricity at a cellular level. So they thought, well, isn't it weird that these two guys have the exact same footage, same story of contact, but they found he had this blood anomaly. So that's why they flew us both to Boston, because they thought, wouldn't it be weird if they both have the same unknown blood anomaly? Sure enough, that's what the Harvard professor found. But I was at 2,100 parts per liter of blood with absolutely no health reasons why it should be there. He said, if I had to guess, because we just don't know, I would think that there's some kind of virus at work that is unknown to mankind that is tricking your brain into releasing these massive amounts of creatine kinase. It's kind of like mitochloridians in the Star Wars, ain't it? That's interesting. Mm. Um, but uh, So that show aired in 2008, March. In the summer of 2008, I went to this festival, and I was met by these beings. First of all, they said, we heard you've been filming us. Over, over Lake Erie. <laughs> went, well, okay. Um, they said, we were once known in your past as the Anunnaki, and you were once known in your past as Ia Inki, the water bearer. Well, none of this made any sense to me because there was no ancient aliens on TV. I didn't even know what a water bearer was, but now I can. We'll talk about that, Richard. <laughs> uh, you know, they look like? communication. With them, they've actually they look me. they look totally human. That's what's yes. so amazing. They're well, totally it is. Human. But you know what? If they can become a giant wolf or a giant deer, I'm sure they can they can appear as whatever they want to appear as because this is the same intelligence behind the and this is you know Bigelow Aerospace contacted me. Well, it was Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies bats. <laughs> And they said, we know you're in contact with the real thing because we've been studying it over the Skinwalker Ranch for a very long time. And uh, we'd like to talk to you because how come you're having such a different experience? They called coming up against the trickster as poltergeist activity. This was multidimensional intelligence, and it proved to them it was one step, step ahead of them all the time. How come we've had no problem with it whatsoever? I mean nothing but poltergeist activity and things that are kind of scary, but you have been given this course of study in the cosmic harmonious frequencies and knowledge that has led to, you know, with your help, Richard, um, proof that they've given me technology that opens a portal through the fabric of space time and brings photonic light energy through that. For one thing, it will resurrect dead water into living water with such increase of energy. It's mind-blowing. And I have all the GDV photography. I've shared it all on my page there on your show tonight. Yeah, you've got, you got a, a bunch of the microscopic uh, water uh, experiments from, from uh, uh, Beverly. And it yes. definitely shows that when you expose ordinary water, Rudy, to this technology that came to him from his contacts, it does things to water that you can measure. Mm-hmm. In fact, well, it does it most effectively. My friend, Dr. Rubik, who's been measuring anomalous water signatures for decades, she said she'd never seen a technology produce this effect in such a short period of time as in Michael's, uh, shall we say. I love the name you came up with, Richard, the uh, 
magical hyperdimensional energy disc. <laughs> well, they <laughs> are. Feel that. <laughs> um, but here's the deal. Yes, you can get information right now because you know who the United States government is actually funding is uh, the University of Ottawa. And I've, this is my work that um, they're bringing what they call star knowledge because they came and filmed us and, you know, at a star knowledge conference. Thanks. Rudy, Rudy, are you paying yes, attention? Are you paying attention? Yes, uh, in fact, I can't explain this, um, but it's because I'm so ill-informed or under-informed about uh, what the uh, Ottawa government is, is doing with their program. Um, well, it's all news to me. Here's because it's brand new. Um, we filmed the show for the um, Canadian Public Corporation. I can give everyone a link to that show. I'm involved with this movement. And um, what it is is revealing thousands of years of contact with star beings with Native American First Nations. And um, I'm a part of that movement. <clears throat> I am Seneca Iroquois, and I was brought in as the Mound Builders representative with the major elders, uh, chiefs, and grandmothers of the First Nations, and um, like Clifford Mahoudi. Okay, hang on, hang on. Let me let me let me get something straight. Hmm. Are you telling me that this is an accredited course at a university in Ottawa that's going to yeah, talk quite- about the connection between human beings <clears throat> and ancient family amid the stars? Yes, yes, exactly. And you can prove this. Just go to Google right now and type in Star Knowledge and University of Ottawa. But what's more important is when you bring that up, go and look who's funding it. It's the United States government. The news ain't <laughs> going to come from Congress. They don't know, man. They, you know, this is on a need-to-know basis. But wait, 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 wait. The Congress is part of the U.S. government the last time I looked, okay? Yeah, but they don't know shit. That's, That's because they didn't want to know. Now? Uh, no, you know what? They, it was on a need-to-know basis. As you know, many presidents uh, don't even – weren't briefed. They didn't need to know. Um who you would want to talk to would be the people in charge of these reverse engineering technology programs, like the head of the NSA, you know, which that's what happened after the, the meeting, the Anunnaki. I was contacted by the head of the NSA remote viewers, which is also the reverse engineering division, and they brought me into the fold. And what I'm going to do tonight is I can prove all of this. I'm going to, you know... Go to Team Inky, because here's the deal. He died. We went up against the transhumanists in uh, 2012, and he died the next year because he said we pissed off the wrong people. These are the George Guidestones people, right? Mm. But um, he also said at the end of his life, because I was under tutorship by the actual reverse engineering. I tell you what, Michael, are, we're at the bottom mm-hmm. of the hour. This is fascinating. It, it will grade into what I want to talk about in the last half hour. Don't anybody go anywhere. My guests are staying exactly where they are, and they range from Harvard astrophysics to someone who has met members of the ET family and is making some very interesting things happen. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland on this Saturday night, Sunday morning, May 14th and 15th, 2022. We shall return.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go on this Saturday night, Sunday morning. Rudy, we were we were talking to you about the idea that what's really at focus in this whole exercise is the beginning of a discussion of an extraterrestrial technology which can change anything in our reality. How long do you think the the reality behind all these abductions, all these, I actually hate that word, I think contact is much more appropriate. I don't think these are straightforward abductions like, like you know, the, the Oxford Dictionary would describe. I think there's something much more interesting going on. And I get the feeling that we're on the, on the verge of kind of the next chapter. What do you think? Uh, so I agree with you, Richard. There is that feeling in the air right now. And um, I believe that this is an example of what you might call science, humanity, progressing funeral by funeral. Oh, the, um, old, Max, the old Max Planck thing. He was asked one time, our science ever made progress? He said, only when the old farts die. Uh, so, in fact, that's usually <laughs> what's happening. I was very interested in hearing Mike speak because um, I am aligned with a Native American community who has declared me as their uh, one of their honorary grandfathers. Oh, congratulations. And so they oh, right are on. very open to the concept of Sasquatch. Uh, they be, uh, he is in their tradition. He exists in their tradition, I should say. And also they are very open by, they are very open as a tribe to visits by what they describe as the star people, that is the extraterrestrials. And so um, the kinds of things that we are talking about here tonight are um, also in the Native American community's tradition. Uh, If you're wanting to know uh, where I speak of, it's really a Cherokee-aligned group of uh, Native Americans that meet in Lincoln, Vermont, uh, at the Sunray Peace Village. And um, uh, there has been a, um, uh, um, a great deal of interest in the extraterrestrial question uh, there. Um, people know that I'm interested in it and offer me their stories about things that have happened to them which uh, don't have a good explanation uh, that they could 
consider satisfactory. And uh, we just kind of like to talk and work it out. So I'm very sympathetic to this direction of uh, the conversation. Ah, well, obviously, right we've got to get Where you guys to exchange. Thinking, you know? We need you guys to exchange contact info uh, after the show. Yeah, so, the so, so when the show ends, don't everybody leave. Remember, we have this after party. So everybody stay exactly where you are, and we'll just all exchange emails and make sure that the next step in this progress can go forward. Tell us more about this University of Ottawa thing, Michael, because this is a major breakthrough. I mean, Rudy was just saying at the top of the show, if a major university would do something like this, then you'd have the follow-on effect. Well, apparently, it's happening. You know, I named it, Richard. I was talking to the head producer from the Canadian Public Corporation, and he said, "What uh, what do you think we should name this movement? I said, well, you met us at a Star Knowledge Conference. So it became the uh, Star Knowledge Symposium, so or Symposia. Um, so what they're doing is they're teaching star knowledge. They're le- teaching now at the University of Ottawa um, things that we've learned from thousands of years of contact with star beams, but on every solstice and equinox, you will be able to go to a big powwow at the uh, university and meet with elders and meet with uh, us rainbow warriors and um, learn from us of the new physics and how to uh, resurrect your water, you know. Um, You know, by the way, go back to when I met the Anunnaki and they said you were once known as the water bearer. That made no sense to me now whatsoever. (laughs) But now I can look someone in the eye and go, you know what, I am the water bearer. Would you like to see the scientific NASA data, you know? But um, so what's going on is, you know, with my work with the Native American Indian First Nations, I've begun work with the Mitchell Hedges Crystal Skull. So um, I've begun bringing it to all the sacred sites to unlock the hidden histories of these locations. And um, so they know all of this because they've met us, the Sardalis family. Um, and uh, this has also now become using the Mitchell Hedges Crystal Skull in our mission for, with signals to space. And uh, that's, I've been doing the work just over the last week Richard here with, you know, the transmitter and everything. We can get into that. But um, it's coming back in about a week or two. I'm, we're working out the time frame right now. And I'll be spending four days with uh, Mitchell Hedges Crystal Skull. And the deal is that they want to bring us elders over there um, to start going along uh, sacred sites and bringing the skull there along a very specific latitude line on this planet. It's 51.428. <laughs> I'm going to blow through some info. 51.428 is one-seventh the way around a circle. If you take a circle, 360 divided by 7 is 51.428. Graham Hancock has a side angle of the pyramid at 51.86. I was just now know, that. Yeah. yeah, now we know, though, it's eight-sided, and those eight sides only show themselves on the solstice. Um, but anyhow... Uh, so I'm thinking, well, there's got to be another angle. It can't be just one angle if there's eight sides. And the voice, because I was led by them to understand 51.428. And, um, and, uh, they said subtract your 51.428 from the, uh, side angle Graham Hancock has of, you know, 51.86, and it's 432. <laughs> Think of the intelligence. It would have to be needed to encode 
in the Kome, that's the true Ark of the Covenant. It's an ark. It's one seventh the way around. And I think this ties in with 19.5, Richard, because I think it's showing the... It does. It does. By the way, you know, you know that A. Berry is located one seventh away from the pole on this measurement, and A. Berry is a miniature version, according to uh, some work we did years ago of Sidonia. Yes, indeed. Fifty-one point four to two eight runs right through A. Berry, Stonehenge, all of it, all these sacred sites, mm-hmm. and mounds, stone structures are all dotted. Not only that, though, people have wondered how come. The crop circles are only showing up there. Well, they're dotting 51.428, which is the seven-pointed star, which is, look at the Cherokees' symbol for their tribe. It's a seven-pointed star. Oh, let me These ask Rudy a question, triggered memory here. Rudy, have you ever been intrigued with the complexity and mathematical layerings of, of so-called crop circles and wondered who was really doing them? Um, the problem there is that... Uh, there are uh, groups of um, tractor owners with GPS-guided tractors right. uh, that can turn one out uh, with no difficulty. But at the same time, there seem to be some that are truly of extra, uh, uh, of some kind of ET-related origin. And there are some people who uh, can predict that uh, uh, a crop circle will, will appear in the morning and... Uh, um, and there it is the next day. So, um, hey, Michael, because yeah, I tell, 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 tell Rudy your crop circle story. Um, they started using crop circles to communicate cosmic harmonious frequencies and 369 Tesla technology. That's where that what led to the uh, magical hyperdimensional energy disk. Um, so. They told me I was known as the Yankee, the water bearer. So that was in 2008, my first meeting. As I said, that, that, that didn't mean anything. So I said, you know what? If you are who you say you are, and I am who you say I am, and quote the name Ia Inky into a crop circle, I can tell you I'm a student of the subject. I will take notice. That will be my confirmation that you are who you say you are, because I wasn't just going to accept it, you know? Well, in 2011, which was two years um, the crop circle showed up and Corona, Italy. Um, I actually, I think I, it's in my list of pictures on there. That is a seven pointed star. And at the end of each star, you'll see a row that's like dot, dot, zero, dot, 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 zero. Then the next one is totally different. Well, that's ASCII binary code, which we told them March 11th, 1968, the government put out all digital communication will be ASCII binary code. Um, I know that because that's my birthday, <laughs> but, um, okay. so in, written in ASCII binary code around the seven pointed star in this is Ia space Inky, exactly what I told them to encode. So that, that crop circle became very important to me and it was the beginning of our communication. I'm, I don't call them crop circles now. I call them crop communications because that's 9A what, and 9B for you on your, your items. Ah, cool, cool. Hey, by the Michael, way, I want to share something. Go ahead. Michael, it's Andrew here. Nice nice to meet you. I think we met, met nice. before. Yeah, Michael, you know, it's funny. Um, um, Dr. Schild is um, sort of off the top, spoke about, you know, human consciousness and 
and how it's really entwined with, you know, a co-creation maybe of our reality. And isn't in this whole scenario we're discussing, especially what you just touched on there, where you requested something and it manifested. And in that, and maybe in a subtext in these hearings, could we be looking at a cautionary tale? And Richard, you might want to relate the movie Forbidden Planet and how that torsion physics became a very dangerous, I mean, in, in, in a science fiction realm, became a very dangerous um, uh, toy for humanity because we weren't, at least in that film, uh, I don't know. If well, it was the whole MacGuffin of a collaboration in 1956 of all the major studios, Disney and MGM and the best artists and the best, you know, uh, they got extraordinary music from the that, you know, man and wife team. It was it was first cabin all the way and it carried over and over and over again this subliminal etched out in the mathematics of the plot and of the action hyperdimensional connection over and over and over again including the idea that the reason that this monster could be kept alive after the civilization was gone is that they tried to basically penetrate the consciousness barrier so that whatever they imagined they could whip to any point on the planet at you know exceeding the speed of light so they basically it was the uh, monsters from the id was how the MacGuffin in the in Forbidden Planet was explained. It was the ultimate savage of, of the evolution of the Krell from savagery up to space that got them in the end because the the technology unleashed all the hidden demons in their minds that had no feedback loop, had no control, and so they wound up with their consciousness using their technology to inadvertently destroy themselves. That was the cautionary tale of Forbidden Planet. This technology is not useful for humans because it will destroy us. That's what I learned from the elite because I was, like I said, I was brought in to the reverse engineering team and they brought me before uh, the elitist and they said why this subject has been kept from humanity is unlimited free energy. Said that if they know that there's other intelligences, the people, that the next question is, well, how they get in from A to B? And they said, you don't even need alien intervention. Um, people like Tesla, you know, have figured it out. And um, But this, they don't trust humanity with this because they said it's truly unlimited, it's truly free, and it's truly energy. Well, so, in this, in this solar system, I've proven it destroys entire planets. So Forbidden Planet was a cautionary tale at a time when this was poised, Rudy, on the edge of either going public or staying secret. And the overwhelming vote was at all costs, it must stay secret because it will ultimately wind up killing the human species if it's allowed to run free. Well, at the right, at the right time, it's not. They said that's the problem is this is truly Pandora's box, unlimited free energy. Because they asked me, these elitists, they said, um, what do you think a person that would stone a woman to death in the middle of a village because she was rumored to be having an affair, what do you think that they're going to do with their unlimited free energy? Well, look at what just happened in, 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 um, in, you know, in, in Buffalo. In Buffalo, just, just a few hours ago. Imagine if the guy, instead of having an assault rifle, he would had a hyperdimensional 
you know, nuke in his backpack. Yes. They said a planet has to be at a certain frequency level even before, because if, if we're not evolved enough for unlimited free technology, we'll self-implode. And that's what the Anunnaki, by the way. Okay, that's the one I don't believe. Oh, that's okay. the one I do believe. Go ahead, uh, Ron. No, the, Go ahead. Yeah, I don't, this, this bit about, well, we're just not ready for this. We can't handle this. This is all. Uh, I don't agree either. I told them, I said, listen, I said, we're all in agreement that there's a higher intelligence here. Um, let's talk to them. I don't want to talk to Congress. Let's talk to the ones that yeah. maybe got through this phase of evolution a million years ago and learn no, how to get higher di- Yeah, well, higher or different. You know, it's, it's, uh, they've, uh, I don't think anybody assembled here tonight and probably most of the audience uh, thinks other than that they've been around people from elsewhere have been around for a long time and Absolutely. they're not doing a lot of it. They're not doing a lot of overt damage. They may be doing an awful lot of um, under the surface. damage. I was going to say, you have no idea. Ron, 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 Ron. The yeah, other day when okay. I was trying to get Bassett to talk about politics, cause he's going to be on tomorrow night to talk about the, the kind of mechanics of how this, you know, hearing is going to unfold and how we can interact with it. He mm-hmm. refuses to even broach the idea, Rudy, Joe, Ron, Andrew, mm-hmm. Michael, that ETs, at least one group, do not have our best interests at heart and have worked very hard for very long down on the farm and by throwing all kinds of fear porn in front of potential changes in that paradigm, meaning what happens next week and beyond, they're trying to limit the communication, which we're never supposed to have because it will change us from a, you know, subjected uh, species to one that's liberated. Uh, I I agree with you completely on that. I don't know what everybody else thinks, but this is like that that, uh, apocryphal story of hell where uh, everybody's in their own little uh, world to torture them appropriately, and yet the door is open. It's not locked. Anytime they can walk out of it. I mean, that's the, uh, you know, it's the same kind of metaphor, because I don't buy this stuff. This is all, these are all control control mechanism phrases. And uh, I, that's why I get quiet when these things come along, because I get, it gets tiresome. I don't care what kind of uniform they're wearing or any of that other stuff. If they're, well, uh, what about just looking at a better way of doing it where unlimited free energy can be revealed to a planet that's been prepared properly and don't don't go into a freak out over it because that's what the Well, how do we know it's unlimited and free? Maybe it's just a different set of physics with its own rules and regulations. You know, that's, no, you know uh, what? I mean, I've just proven that yeah. I've brought an unlimited free energy device proven that I'm bringing through photonic light energy from another Can I dimension. Put it power my phone with it? Give me a I'm minute. Not, okay. Yeah, I'm not I'm not being totally facetious here. It's just that that's that's where it always stops. Oh, okay, guys, 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 oh, guys, guys. Oh, when did I lose control of my show? Um we got about ten minutes. I want to make sure we cover in terms of why we should care. We now have this opportunity, this incredibly brief, fleeting opportunity, UFOs, UAPs, bizarre things that go bump in the night that have baffled U.S. Navy fighter pilots 
are going to be appearing on national global television. What is it we can do, guys, specifically uh, addressed now to Rudy and to Joe, to make the hearings go in the direction that we want them to go, which is everything is on the, is on the table? My concern is that uh, Congress is just filled with lobbyists. They're, they're bought and paid for by the military-industrial complex and big pharma. Uh, the military-industrial complex is booming right now, selling arms to Ukraine and, and, uh, and all of that good stuff. Oil is at an all-time high. Uh, as we all know, the old school days of Majestic 12, it's no longer military that's controlling this information. It's now the military industrial complex and big corporations uh, and aerospace corporations and oil companies uh, who have no interest in releasing this free energy that some of your guests were just speaking about. Uh, I see, I'm just very concerned. I'm just very concerned about um, Congress is bought and paid for by lobbyists. Uh, Okay. 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 Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, admitting everything you've said up to now is 100% correct, okay? Why would these hearings be poised where they are unless somewhere at some level someone wants this next level of disclosure and it cannot be controlled? That's why I find it kind of amusing. That's why I'm here, Richard. You know, the, the head of the reverse engineering division of the NSA I have so much learning material. I have e-books. I have correspondences. And at the end of his life, he said, I want you to release this to everyone because the time for secrecy is over and release everything that you've, all the learning material that you've learned over the years of my work with them um, to release it to the world. And it's already done. You don't have to wait. Go to Team Inky on Facebook. Go to the file section. Go to the writings of A.R. Borden as well and because we me and the team members realized you know what i had a certain batch of learning material from them someone else had another batch we we said we better create somewhere where we can make a library of all this data that we have and that is the writings of ar borden and all the same information can be found on team inky um and that is in the file section as well. This is all on what the NSA actually knows from contact and technology transfer programs, specifically with the Anunnaki. And that's what I wanted to say. They, the first thing that they did is set me up with an interview, with, not an interview, a meeting with Bob Dean. Sat down and had a two-and-a-half-hour conversation with him over breakfast, just me and him. <clears throat> and um, he was telling me things that was mind-blowing. And uh, Kerry Cassidy from uh, whatever that um, Project Project. Camelot, she came up and she goes, you know, I overheard your conversation. Would you mind me uh, recording a little bit of it? I was like, yes, please. You know, well, she's released it. I just that. So this is from mine and Bob's talk. What he said is the Anunnaki met with President Eisenhower in 1954 at Muroc Airfield and that – that Eisenhower put together a team, including a bishop, and they wanted someone from all these different walks of life. They were having a actual meeting with the Anunnaki, Inky side specifically. That's that's what he said. We can get into that more, but that's the video I just sent to you. I'm so I feel blessed that that was documented somehow because um, 
at that point, we went into technology transfer programs with the Anunnaki. It was just, just decided that uh, actually, you know. That's that's part, that's number 10 on your items, uh, since you can't see what you're looking at. Excellent. It's, that's oh, with Robert yeah. Odin. Yeah, man, Bob, uh, you know, we became very close, and he said he, he's met the Anunnaki, and um, that uh, it was really weird, actually, because he was like a hero of mine. When I needed answers, Spirit led me to Bob Dean and Richard Hoagland, and um, uh, I was standing there. This is at the UFO Congress where this meeting happened, and I had gifted him one of my uh, magical multi- uh, hyperdimensional energy disc. Mm-hmm. It's a mouthful. I'm working on it. And um, <laughs> it was remarkable. Um, you know, the uh, Star David 19.5, that encoded into one of my quartz crystals. And uh, so I handed it to him, and, you know, he looked, and he's like, yes. So I'm standing there, and he walks up behind me, puts his arm around me, and says to the crowd, this here is one very special man. I was like, what? Oh, like, Nice Bob Jean saying this because I was embarrassed, you know. But the deal is, um, I am this Native American Indian's chosen ambassador. That's why I brought this forth, this truth. This is disclosure, and it's happening right now in another country, and it's funded by the United States government. How about that? So they know about this. They know the true contact and information. Well, see, this fits into my model, Michael, and this is where I have – Real, you know, shall we say, um, differences of opinion with Stephen, which will come out mm-hmm. again tomorrow night. Because I felt for quite a while now that there is a calendar, there is a disclosure clock, there is a, <clears throat> a, a kind of a timekeeping, and you can't do this unless the physics, the background physics, is with you. It's kind of like trying to surf when there's no surf. And you know and, what, Richard? And and that the idea. Let me finish here. The idea that there's a clock tells me that these hearings are not just because somebody, Stephen or me or whatever, just would not take no for an answer, and we kept at it and kept at it, and finally, grudgingly, you know, Rubio and others are kind of look. No, there's much bigger things going on, and this is part of, I believe, <clears throat> an orchestrated unfoldment under control to try to maintain some kind of control of a subject that inherently is, I believe, uncontrollable past a certain point. Yes. Guys, may I, may I add just one little piece here. Again, back to the consciousness and what Dr. Shield talked about is we almost need like consciousness training wheels to take the next step. And, and it's interesting that both Michael and Dr. Shield are, have been adopted into First Nations cultures, you know, you got to wonder if these ancient cultures, somewhere in their con- in their own consciousness, their sort of group consciousness, in their own anthropomorphic field or something, that they have an understanding of how to begin integration again with this technology, with the raising of consciousness, and a more well. There's a, one other thing, Michael. Uh, Michael of, of Andrew. Let me let me kind of crib off that. Sure. I don't think it's about changing or patterning or educating consciousness i think the physics is going to change it automatically our job is to channel it in the right direction remember the big picture it's all about choice what kind of universe 
for the next 26,000 year cycle do we want to live in? I, I want the golden age. Well, I don't well, think that's a, that far away. Look, if this frequency shifting is not smooth, but in fact is in steps, if it's quantified, it, you could go to bed one night in one physics and wake up the next morning and everything will have changed in terms of frequency, the field, the torsion physics. Okay, watch the time here. I'm watching, I'm watching. Okay. Anyway. I just want to say, because you'll be interested, Tanner told me your clock you're talking about. They said it's a processional cycle. It's it. No. It is. It is a processional cycle. Okay. That's Um, a big clock. We're going to pick this up as the hearings proceed. We'll bring this panel back together uh, in a couple, three weeks. Uh, Rudy, I need to talk to you about your publication, The Physics, Black Holes, Consciousness, all that. Tomorrow night, Steve Bassett is going to lay out a roadmap for how we can intervene in the hearings by giving us the background. Until then, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. See you tomorrow night. Peace.